I'll be back. You just tuned into the show, man. We called it the Blind Spotters. Hit that subscribe button. You know you ought to go ahead and like and review. Just sit back, relax, and learn something new. Blind we got spotters. Haven on the left, James on the right. When we peel back the layers that were not in sight, Blind we spotters. turn on the spotlight to grab your attention. Just to help with retention We got a bad habit of going through life Overlooking aspects that you know just might Help you with your next job or get closer with your family When you got a plan A, you don't need a plan B You have tuned into the Blind Spotters with Haven and James Say hi, James Hello, everyone How are you today, Haven? I'm doing fantastic uh, We have a special guest uh, One of my dear friends from here in Southern California, um, kind of a rags to mate something of himself story. My dear friend, Jonathan Sada. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, Heaven, how are you? I am doing fantastic, man. Thank you so much for uh, taking out the time. I just think your story is pretty interesting. So uh, if you don't mind, we're just gonna like interview you and just like, just hear your story. Is that fine? Absolutely. Absolutely no problem. All right. So, Jonathan's French, as you can tell a little bit by the accent. So, Jonathan, obviously, where did you grow up? And just tell us a little about, tell us a little about what it was like growing up in France. In fact, you know, I grew up, I was born in Tunisia, which is a French colony. Okay. You, know, you have uh, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. They are colonies that French used to occupy. So uh, I was in a, it was a town which is a very famous uh, military town for the French, where they had uh, probably the only one in um, North Africa that had uh, atomic shelters. And uh, so the French were living, a lot of French were uh, in that city called Biserta. And I was born there in 1948. And uh, my mom was pregnant of me when my father died. So she was 28 years old and uh, my father died and I, she was pregnant six months and she had three other babies, three, three other kids at home. And so the start in our life was pretty difficult, you know, very difficult. And she worked her butt off. She never remarried. She sent us to school, uh, to education, and so on. We moved back to Paris after that, France, of course, where we grew up, and where we lived till 19, uh, 1968. I was then 20 years old. As I said, she worked very hard to send us to uh, school. You know, in Europe, school is free. That's a good advantage. You don't have to pay for university. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the luxury of being able to go to college, to go to uh, schools, and all, all education was paid for. But she worked really hard to be able, you know, when you have four young kids like that, you know, to, uh, to do all that for, for us was pretty tough. And uh, so we were, we were a poor family, if you want, basically, right? And then uh, I was Jewish. I was, I'm still Jewish, by the way, but I was Jewish. And then in 1968, I don't know if you remember, but in 1967, there was a big war in Israel between Israel, the, the, the Six-Day War. Probably you heard about it, but I don't know if you, if you remember that or not. But we moved to Israel in 1968. And I went to work for a factory in Israel. Mm -hmm. It was making 
devices for and parts for aerospace, you know, for planes, basically. Yep. And, uh, so we stayed in Israel for a while. Not, you know, again, none of us were rich. None of us were rich, not the kid, nothing. And then 20, I, I, got, I met my wife, which was, we came from Finland. My wife is from Finland. We met, we met, we got married there and we got two young kids in Israel. And then uh, in the 80s, I was asked by the company I represented to come to the US and to try to open a branch to help sell their product to the aerospace market. You know, in the US you had General Dynamic, McDonald's, Lotus, Boeing, use aircraft, all the big aerospace company, okay? Yes. I, we, we, I, we came to the US with my wife and the two kids, which were in that, at that time, you know, in their, in their t- teenagers, 15, 16. And as we started doing the job, the company that sent me here got sold to another company. Hmm. And the other didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I was left in the US, basically alone in a country that I hardly know where the freeways were. I was driving with a Thomas guide on my knees to try to find places where to go and learn and sell the products and so on. And uh, so we were really, we knew nobody. We had no money in the bank. We were absolutely on our own. I swear to God that there were days that my wife would not be able to pull 20 bucks from the, from the bank. You know, like we putting the card in the, in the ATM. card, the ATM, 20 mm-hmm. bucks would be nine. And then somebody told me the American way of life is to have five credit cards. You pay one with the other. And, <laughs> other. and we did like that for a year and a half, you know, like really working our butt off and uh, uh, doing depth and depth and depth. And uh, I decided that the only thing I could do at that time was to create in my, my own company because I had started you know, to do contacts with the big guys, you know, the Boeing and the used aircraft and, uh, you know, all the big companies, Raytheon. And uh, I started this company. It was a small company at the beginning, you know, where we were selling probably, I represented an Israeli company making cutting tools and uh, part like that for aerospace. And we were selling about $100,000 a year at that point, which was, you know, very, very little. And uh, within a few years of very hard work, we grew that to about uh, $20 million. So I can tell you that the American dream worked for us. You know, we really worked hard and uh, the products were good. The uh, customers were very, very, uh, you know, willing always to try and to give you opportunities and so on. And, uh, you know, we hired people, the company grew. It was uh, really for us very, very, uh, a very nice story of uh, success in the, in the U.S., okay? Mm-hmm. So we had uh, two kids, one boy and a girl. We still have two kids, one boy and a girl. They are now, uh, one is, uh, they're in their 47 and 48, almost, almost 50. And uh, two grandkids. Uh, so my, our son lives in Texas with his wife and the two grandkids. And I have to share here a little bit of a story, a personal story, which is a little bit of a tragedy that happened to us. Please, by all means. It's maybe, maybe a big tragedy. And I really want to take the opportunity to be on the waves to maybe explain how the system here can be flawed. Okay. So our grandson, the elder one, Jonathan, he has the same name as me, Jonathan David. Okay. He is a, he was a, I shared with you some of his experience and he was born with something called borderline 
uh, disorder, okay? So it's a very, very unknown disease, which is a, it's a borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is basically close to, uh, you know what bipolar is? Very much so. Okay, so, so, uh, so people that have bipolar, you can give them pills, you can give them treatments and things of that nature. When you are borderline personality disorder, there is no treatment. So basically you can go to group therapy, you know, and share your experiences and so on. But the, the thing with that disease is that the, the main feature is that you cannot accept criticism, okay? You react very violently, almost like our president on steroids. <laughs> So, so uh, Jonathan, you know, went uh, when he, he he wanted to join the uh, the Coast Guard Navy when he was eighteen. So he practiced a lot a year before that. You know, he really did. He, he was he, he was even accepted in the Marines. He was smart. He was he one of the best chess player, bodybuilding, six foot tall, really an athlete. Okay. I think I show you photographs, in fact. Yeah. And when he went, when he went to the Marines, and he was uh, in the how do you call that the class at the beginning, you know, the boot camp. Yes. He had an officer that was really a son of a bitch, like you see in Full Metal Jacket. You know those type of people that are from the movies. Right? Yes. And he, uh, Jonathan, wanted to show how good he was. So when the the uh, the, the surgeon, you know, would run and the people. Jonathan would run faster than anybody, would go would make three times the, the, the push-up than anybody, would be the stronger. And then at one point, the second day, in fact, the surgeon, you know, the, the, the leader, told him, you're, you're a son of a bitch, you know, you, what are you here? You're here to show up. He put him on the ground with his leg on his back, and Jonathan had a breakdown. Mm. And they put him in the hospital in the, in the uh, military there, and he was chained to his bed for two days and think about that when you have a borderline and what that can do to you okay yeah so he came out of the hospital and came back home completely broken and since then you know it went downward he started using drugs some at the beginning it was just you know weed but then he started using things like benzo if you don't know if you know what that is benzo and yeah you know Think like that, and uh, so it was from. We took him from uh, from therapy therapist, from doctor to counselor to thing of that nature. He was a, he was a very good kid, really a good kid, really really. He was intelligent. He was smart. He has just a disease that we didn't know how to treat. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, he was uh, arrested because he and a friend had, were found with drugs on them. And uh, the verdict was that, I mean, the judgment say that if he stays one year clean, it would be, you know, no, no problem. I mean, it wouldn't be even on his record. It's important to tell you that because you would understand what happened in a minute. At that same time, we, my uh, son and his wife asked the cops that arrested him to put him on the list of not to have, not to be able to buy a gun. Remember, they live in Texas, but you can't file a form like that where you cannot buy a gun, okay? And the fact that he was twice in treatment and the fact that he was arrested and he was in rehab houses, all those signs should have been forbidding you to buy a gun. And despite all that, he was able to buy a gun. Okay? He bought a gun. He had a gun at home. And uh, he was clean for a year after this uh, you know, uh, arrest. 
And when he went back home, uh, you know, after he, he, he met a girl and he was in love with her. He had a job. They were very happy. Everything was perfect, you know, being clean and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the girl left him and he couldn't find the reason why. And uh, he tried, you know, he, we were very close to him. We were with him. His father was with him all day, all the, all the time, all the time, evening, day and so on. Everything, everything. He tried everything to, you know, to, to cheer him up. I tried, his brother tried, everybody and so on. But he, he, he was too destroyed by this and uh, he shot himself and he's dead now. This happened two months ago. So it's a, it was a tragedy for us. I'm sorry I'm telling you a bad story like that on the, on the phone. I mean, here uh, on an interview like that, you were probably hoping that I would tell you a lot of jokes or things of that nature like friends do normally or tell you about food or about women. But this, has been, this is so, so recent in our lives that uh, you know, when he killed himself, he killed a little bit of his dad, his mom, his brother, his aunt, my wife, myself, okay? And the question is, I've been sending letters to a lot of people and his dad done the same and nobody answers. How can it be that if you are on a list of not able to buy a gun, if you, ha- if you have been in, you know, in, the, in jail for uh, even for a few days, okay? If you have been in treatment for such a long time and all that, how can people buy a gun and do that? That's really something that I really want to know. Yeah. First of all, I'm absolutely sorry about your loss. That's, that's just heartbreaking. I, I can't imagine it. And, you know, I mean, you can't imagine it. You just don't want to. I mean, that's just such a painful thing. Um, you know, to answer your question, I can tell you, like being in jail, some people will say that shouldn't disqualify you because people get wrongfully put in jail or uh, put in jail for nonviolent things. Um, I wish there was a way for people who had mental illness to be put on a list to where they can't have guns, specifically those people who were dangerous, but possibly dangerous to themselves or others. Uh, I know, unfortunately, in Texas, that's not the case at this moment. Um, it, it would have to be something pretty, pretty severe. And the sad thing is, like in a case like with Jonathan and like with borderline personality disorder, it's it's... Um, I can tell you a little bit about borderline personality disorder, Jonathan. Um, it's one of those things. And tell me if, uh, if your grandson was like this, where they, they have tend to have extreme reactions um, and extreme opinions. Like he might meet somebody and be like, this is the greatest person in the world and think they're the greatest person. And then they can say something that they really disagree with or that upsets them. And now they're kind of the worst person. Much um, like him. Yeah, they can engage in a lot of self-harming. A lot of times with people with borderline personality disorder, they may cut themselves. And um, Correct. They, a lot of things like that. Um, I've heard from people who engage in that. And so this is very much just um, sort of circumstantial. You know, it's not like this is what happens with all borderline people. I'm just telling you about experiences and people I've talked to with. And a lot of times they'll cut themselves uh, to create a pain. So there's a, there's a feeling beyond the one they're feeling. So they, it's almost like a distraction from the pain they have. Um, sometimes, and a lot of times, some of what they talk about with borderline personality disorder is a lot of times, it sometimes develops from a trauma when they were young, whether 
and it could have been getting bullied or that type of thing. Um, and so a lot of times they develop extreme reactions to sort of protect themselves and to make sure that whatever happens doesn't happen again. That doesn't mean that Jonathan was ever bullied or- He was, he was bullied. He was, you, you seem to know a lot about the, the disease. You really seem to know, you know, very yeah. often mentioned the name and people have uh, vaguely even heard about that ever in their life. So, so there is a treatment for it, Jonathan, and it's not medicine. Uh, it's a long-term therapy uh, and it's a therapeutic technique and it's within the group dynamic called uh, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. Yes. Um, and, you know, if they go through that, you can learn some the people with borderline personality disorder can learn skills on how to effectively channel their feelings. Um, and some of it is things like, you know, with the pain stuff, instead of cutting yourself, they might give you little tools like holding a piece of ice in your hand and letting it melt there. So you, they can feel that intensity or that pain without physically hurting themselves to that extent. Um, but also learn how to process and have, because what, what they really don't have is the ability to have the appropriate reaction to a stimuli. You know, they have extreme reactions to situations. Um, and so I wish there was a pill that would help that. And I wish there was something that would do that. But really the thing that's been most effective, like I said, is the DBT or the dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and, but unfortunately, it's it, you don't find it in a lot of, I mean, there are not all around you know those, you're, those you're not gonna you're not gonna find that in rural areas most of the time yeah um and um they're and, and it's tough you know and i'll tell you and i'm gonna be real candid about this it's tough like a lot of therapists have a lot of reservations about working with people with borderline personality disorder um and i'll give you an example why it's that uh, and I'll tell you, Jonathan, I'm a therapist. So I, there's a reason I have a lot of knowledge on this. Yeah, that's probably why you know so much. Good. Yeah, yeah so I, I've studied it, so I have some knowledge. But I'll tell you, I remember whenever I was uh, working on my education in this, and I had a professor in a law class that was about psychology and law. And he said, if you are in, if you go into private practice and you do private practice for a career, at some point you'll get sued. And most likely that person's going to have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder because what will happen is when they go into that therapy, they're going to have a person who listens to them and focuses on them and works on them. And they're going to think it's the greatest person in the world. You, my therapist is the greatest therapist in the world. And then when that therapist starts challenging them on some things, they're going to start going, you know, my therapist is kind of garbage. I need a new therapist. And so that turn on him is very, you know, it's it's dangerous because not not like physically dangerous or dangerous like hurting but like all of a sudden then you've got somebody who really hates you or resents you or that type of thing for something that's very benign as you know like you could just say the most mildly even constructive thing and will be taken as criticism or you could say something that might be critical like hey you're not going to be able to get to do what you want to do unless you really start hitting your books harder and actually applying yourself and they'll take that as a slight as opposed to an encouragement or as opposed to, hey, this person's trying to help me on in life. Um, and, yeah, and as I say they all the time, I don't, I, you know, this is going on to the public. I don't want to generalize. This isn't in all the case, but it's real no, consistent. But you, but 
you're very, very, very close. In fact, I want to answer two of the points you raised. The first one, he was bullied. He was bullied when he was maybe in the fifth grade. He was bullied. And the decision mm -hmm. of the parents was to do homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And it was a mistake because, you know, he, homeschooling is not the answer to everything. And uh, to leave him at home like that uh, without the contact with the society, I think was, you know, looking at that in the, from behind today, mm -hmm. uh, it looks like it was a mistake. And the second thing about the therapist, you're absolutely right, because for maybe, maybe three months, we moved him to California from Texas to a place here called the uh, Oak Forest uh, Therapy Center. Mm -hmm. And they had an, an IOP where they have, you know, a treatment. Yeah, and uh, there was a, there was a guy called Patrick there that was phenomenal. He he made those those group those sessions you know you talked about. Yes, and, and he was he it was phenomenal. You know he they, they, they did right away. They were the best friend, and he he, he was looking mm -hmm. for those meetings, and he really improved a lot and everything. And then, unfortunately, after three months, both him and his father, he, he wanted to go to Texas, you know, to start to go back to his uh, regular life with his brother, his mom and everybody. And then he left, yeah. but it was probably a mistake. He should have stayed. You're right. That, that person has an important role in saving those kids. Very, very important. Yes. And, and in that, that therapeutic uh, technique, the dialectical behavioral therapies, the one that's, so I'll tell you, this is getting way off in the woods, but it was developed by, uh, a therapist named Marsha Lenahan in Washington state. And it really is sort of the gold standard on treatment of DBT. Uh, one of the things I just want to clarify, just because a lot of listeners aren't going to know when you talk about IOP, that's intensive outpatient. And you can tell me how often Jonathan went, but that's usually somebody going with four to five times a week for two to four hours at a time. Does exactly. That sound about exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Four times a week, two hours at a time. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. And so if he was doing that and getting that, I mean, that was the right track. Uh, yeah. And what else you have in there when you have in those groups is not only do you have this therapeutic technique that they're learning and it's, or an intervention, even more than a technique, because it's more than just a single technique. It's, you know, I don't know all the things about it, but I know about it sort of, you know, on a global kind of overall scale. But you also have a support system because you have a lot of other people in that group that are going through the same things. But what's really cool about those groups is you'll have people who are a lot farther down the road so they can sort of be almost wise mentors like, yeah, I've been there I'm where you're at. And now I'm not necessarily where I want to be, but I'm 70 percent there. And so then you're right. there was you a guy like that. that. Yes. Yeah. And then they can and then people like in the group where he is can they could have been that to somebody who's a week into the program or two weeks, you know? And so, um, you know, I can't say enough that if anybody listening, if they have anybody that's diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, you know, really seek out a DBT group. Um, anyway. Yeah. You can I, save the life of your loved one this way. Yeah. And you want to do everything you can to do that because it does it, you lose a piece of you. Like when you, when somebody you care about and it's just family, friends, whatever, when they, when they take their lives and even just die young, you just, there's a piece of you that's no longer there. Um, and it's hard to recover because that piece is so vital to your existence. And it's almost this weird, I don't know, this, this feeling of like, 
you can go on, but you don't want to because you're never going to be the same. And you almost have to grow in a way to kind of take the spot of that place because you, you, you don't ever, th that piece of never comes back because he, he holds that for you. Right. I mean, and there'll always be that special place that's empty, but it represents them. And so it, it's, it's such a, a struggle in so many ways of reconciling losing somebody. You know, when, when something like that happened to you, there is two, you, you get two blows. The first one is you lose somebody you love. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's immense, tr tremendous pain, you know, especially when they are 20 years old, you know, 21 sure. years old. But the second thing, which is probably that I would have never thought about, okay, but that all of a sudden, you know, I, I've always been an example of uh, steadiness and strength in my company, in my corporation, in the family, I'm always the one that organized things, always the one, the, the leader, never, never afraid of challenges, none of that, nothing yeah. like that. But all of a sudden you realize of something is that the vulnerability, you know, all of a sudden you feel that people around you can die. All of a sudden yes. you feel it can happen to his brother, can happen to our son, to his, to his, to our daughter, to my wife. And I never thought this way before. And it give you panic attacks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you you can understand what I'm talking about, but I never thought this way before. You know, I was always a big optimistic and, and yeah. uh, outgoing person, leader everywhere. I know I'm seeing a shrink once a week because I need help. I feel I can need help against those fear that I have all of a sudden of the fear. What if, what if it happened now? What if it happens again? Do you understand? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, you know, living in the therapy world and as a therapist, I do think of those things and I'll tell you, I know this is, you know, this is sort of going down a weird path, but you know, my father, when he passed away about a little over four years ago, as strange as it is, is I had the sadness and this loss, but being in the field I am, I also, in seeing the things I've seen, I also had this feeling of, I'm so happy for him that he never had to bury any children or grandchildren. Uh, because I'm acutely aware of that in this field. And so I, I understand that, that pain and, you know, not having dealt with that. I haven't lost an offspring or that type of thing, but I've been close enough to it to where you see the pain and, and you understand it. Yeah. Never to the level that somebody who actually experiences it never like that. But, um, I, I I'll tell you, I'm, I'm very proud of you that you go to a therapist and that you take that initiative. And, you know, what I would encourage you is that, you know, be as candid and open with your therapists as possible. Um, those things can really matter. Um, it's okay to be afraid. And a lot of times is when you acknowledge those things, you start to own it. Um, and it's so funny because as humans, we're very, we're survivalist. We survive and it's our nature. And um, we really think about our own survival so much, so much, so much. But then when it's somebody in the family that goes, that's where you feel vulnerable. And like, exactly like you're talking about, you had no vulnerability until that point, or none that you sort of were aware of. I mean, it was sort of a blind spot. We're all vulnerable. You know, every time we all get in a car, get in a plane, you True, know, walk you down the wrong road, but you, you're, not, you're not aware of that up until principle almost you know you know yeah. you things you know you ride horses you go ski downhill and all that because mm -hmm. you 
somehow you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be okay and then something like this happened and all of a sudden you not only so much for yourself but for all the people that are you love that are close to you all of a sudden what if something like that happened to them and that you, you you couldn't bear it you understand absolutely and more so the people you love than yourself yeah absolutely yeah oh it's uh i really uh, uh we went through this has been two months ago so yeah. it's been it's been a tough challenge for us tough challenge you know we are a very close family and you know to be honest with you the pandemic didn't help much because you know we can't travel so you know all my family is in france all yeah. of them brother sister cousin nephew uncle everybody right and then yes. wife is in fin families in finland and we have a daughter in israel so you know it, we're dying to take a plane with the family with our son and the other grandson right and his mom and take yes. everybody used to do that twice a year heaven know that mm -hmm. we travel all the time in fact we were supposed to go this summer not summer but this spring we we're supposed to go to safari in tanzania the family okay which mm -hmm. we had canceled because of the uh, pandemic so so it's not only that all that happened on top of it we cannot even try to be gathered with the family and when i hear stories you know uh, of people that have been dying during this uh, terrible uh, COVID-19 alone, you know, by holding the hand of a nurse and things like that because of the what happened. Now it breaks my heart. It breaks my yeah. heart. We have we have the the way we used to live has changed so much. Yes. Yeah, and every time now in this type of scenario, when you hear about these losses and all that does, that just triggers your loss. And taps into it and so you're you've got a loss with an exponent on it where it's a loss times 10 or times 50 or what i don't even i can't even imagine or quantify that but um you know and here here's what's going to be really hard is you're going to at some point start healing and start getting better and okay and you're going to feel guilty for feeling that way. I understand. You know, and so you've got to understand that, you know, A, that's a natural feeling, but B, acknowledge it so you can let it go. Like so many times when we have like feelings or experiences, what we end up doing is we don't, uh, we just try to push it away and not think about it, not think about it. And when you ignore those things, whether it's, guilt or heartbreak or this or that or you know insecurities it makes them grow yeah and so you know acknowledge those things and let them get bigger haven jump in here i feel like i'm a dominating this and b um i'm getting a little wordy here <laughs> but just you know i think it's important i guess my takeaway from from all this is that you know we kind of realize that life is fragile and that's what that's what death is kind of a, a reminder for me you know every time somebody close you know we had somebody close uh pass away due to suicide i guess three or four months ago now and uh it's just kind of a reminder just like just smell the roses and uh, and to enjoy every day you know those little things that we complain about you know often so minuscule you know so I just wanted to, I wanted Jonathan to express, you know, his biggest takeaway from all this. You know, that's mine, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, and then if, if there is one thing I'd like you to say too is, you know, 
as many times a day as you can. Tell the people around you, the people you love them, how much you love them. You know, we have a tendency mm -hmm. to forget to tell them that. You never know if you have a chance to say it again. And maybe that's the most important thing they need that very day, you know, yeah. to tell them that you love them and how important they are. You know, we, we, we take mm -hmm. things for granted. We don't, we, we say, oh yeah, love you, you know, like a very, this, this saying love you like that, you know, two seconds, once a mm -hmm. week. That doesn't, I don't think that conveys the message you want to tell the people you love. You need to look at them in the, in the eyes and hold their hand and tell you, I really love you, honey. You know, I think it's very important to tell that as many times you can as, as you have the opportunity. And yeah. even, Go ahead. Even, even taking it a step farther, letting them know how much they matter. Yeah, um, exactly. Because so many times, especially when people suicide, they really are in the mindset of they think everybody will be better off without them. And they don't realize that the, it's absolutely faulty thinking on their part on that, that that is, you know, that they're just, they're in such an emotionally or mentally bad spot that, that, that seems very logical to them and it, it resonates and it seems very true to them. And it's so the opposite. Um, I don't know a case where we're better off without somebody, you know, that we care about and love, you know, when they're gone, but you know, and so I, that's why I say, I think it's always really important that, you know, Hey, they matter. You being here matters. You, you know, you bring that's something it. to my life uniquely that I only get from you. Yeah. You can save a life by just saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important not only just to say it, but you know, to, to really show, you know, through actions, you know, how much people mean to you, you know, a lot of times, uh, like, my grandma's getting up there and I think she's 95 now and she calls me damn near every day. Okay. So I look down at my phone. And I'm like, do I really want to ask? It's like, you know what, man, this might be the last time you talk to her. go ahead and just answer the phone. You know, she's going to ask you the same mm -hmm. five questions, but that'll make her day. Right. Well, how much time did it really take for me to just answer the phone? Right. Yeah. So those are the, those are some of the things I'm just, you know, kind of taking to heart, you know, when you think about somebody like, you know, maybe an old friend, maybe it's your mom or your dad, go ahead, just call them. It's like mm -hmm. five minutes. Yeah. If you got time to binge watch a show or watch a sporting event, go ahead and just call them up and say, Hey, how Thank you doing? You. you okay? It's very important too. So right. Mm -hmm. And it's only five minutes. Yeah. yeah. And it may be 10. So what? Yeah. And, and sometimes people are in such bad shape that those things don't change what they end up doing ultimately, but it may, and it may help. And Even if it's in their hundred, it may. Yeah. yeah. And it's good for your soul. It's good for your soul to share love and to share you know, just an experience that's authentic. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to light things up a little bit, we're going to get to know you a little better, Jonathan. Thank you so much for, you know, basically kind of pouring your heart out to us and telling us, uh, you know, about your experience. So thank you for listening. No problem. So uh, tell, tell me what things make you the most happy, happy now. 
right now? Yes. Right now, you mean after the, after the, our grandson passing? Yeah, what brings you joy? And with like, you know, your top talk, things that bring you to, to talk to our son, you know, mm-hmm. his father, right? Mm-hmm. To, talk to, his, to talk to his brother, to talk to his mom, to talk to our daughter about him, you know, and uh, make sure that everybody's handling the situation okay. Mm-hmm. These are things that, uh, you know, give me joy when I see them. There are days when they are very down and it's forced, as I try to cheer them up the best I can. And uh, so that brings me joy when, there is, when they have a good day. That's probably the number one right now, when, especially my son, because he was, he was not, his, our grandson was not only uh, his son, he was like his best friend. Too, you know, my, mm-hmm. Our son works from home, so he, he could be with him three, four hours every day, going to the gym, to swim together, racing together, everything. So when I hear from him that he's happy, that he's doing okay, that's the number one joy right now, okay. That's cool. So take us back. What was the what was the best day of your life? Do you remember that? When I met my wife. Oh man, I gotta hear this story. I heard you married up, Jonathan. It's a it's a funny story. You know, you want you have time to listen to it? All day. All right. So I there were days, you know, you know me bald and <laughs> and seven years old, but there was time when I was 25 years old and I had long hair like cat. I, in fact, I look like Cat Stevens, you know, long black hair like that and a beard mm-hmm. and, a, and a guitar on my back. I was like that. I can bring a picture if you want next time so that you can see that. It's, I, didn't, I didn't age well, but, <laughs> but anyhow, but that, that's what I was. And uh, I always dreamt of a Scandinavian girl, you know, somebody from either Sweden or Finland or Denmark or Norway or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was in Israel uh, riding on a bus and come this girl in the bus. This was my future wife. And she said that the only seat was next to me and she sat next to me. And then she asked me a question. She said, do you know if there are horses to ride in this town? Okay. And I knew nothing about horses, absolutely nothing. So I, of course, I, she was, I was so fascinated by her that, of course, I said, of course, there is a lot of horses and all of them and so on. And so we did <laughs> on a racing date, okay, okay. On, a, on a horseback riding date, okay. And uh, I was smoking in those days. This is a true story. Now, you're not going to believe that, but I was smoking. I believe you. We were a group of 10 people riding. That's probably one of my second ride in my life. So I was hardly standing on the horse, okay. <laughs> but. Uh, they were good, they were Arabian horses. And then we were at the, there was a group of 10 horses, my wife and me were the first of the group. And the horses were, were walking, you know, the walk, there was walk, trot and gallop, right? Right. So trot and mm-hmm. walk is very slow. And I was talking to my wife and so on, and I was smoking as I was talking, and without paying attention, I burned the ear of her horse. <laughs> So her horse went like in, in the movies, you know, like all of them, she's like an Indian standing, holding on the mane and she's on the side of the horse, you know, like <laughs> going like gallop at a hundred miles an hour. And I, I don't know how I did it because it was my second or third ride, really. I don't know how I did it, but I ran with the horse. I galloped behind her and I stopped the horse and took her and, you know, saved her somehow, okay? Until this day, she doesn't believe that it was not staged, okay? She thinks that I... <laughs> So that's how we that's how we met, and that's how uh, you know we got married after that. And we had a very happy life. So that was the happiest day of my life. Oh man, that's cool. And but after man, that, 
birth of kids and all that. There is a lot of good things. I can uh, tell you that you did something that I think is really big on trying to impress somebody you're dating for the first time. And that's taking them and doing something like exciting on the first date and getting their sort of adrenaline and stuff going. So that's very wild, like taking them horseback riding or taking them to ride roller coasters or something like that. That's always, uh, you, yeah. you knocked it out of the part on that one, Jonathan. And, and you know, the uh, heaven, another, another day where we were very happy in the family and very proud and probably, I, I think I told you about my brother's story, you know, the, in France. Yeah. Do you want to, do you think you, you, there is any interest to listen to it? We, we got number time. A nice story because it gives, it gives hope to people. Okay. So as I, as I said, you know, we, we were poor. We were, none of us were, you know, we were all, we went to school, we went to college, but none of us had money, absolutely not. So my brother, William, who is older than me by eight years, he was working on a, um, as a machinist, you know, on a mill operator, you know, like a machine, machine like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, machining, machinist is, right? Yes. He started working at age 13. Age 13, he started, you know, to, to feed the family, to help feed the family and everything. And his passion was movies. He loved movies like there is nothing else. So half of his income, he would go to see sometimes three, four movies a day, not a week, a day. Okay. And he would remember everything about the movies and so on. And that was his dream, his passion. And in Paris in 1966, they started a new program like Jeopardy, just about movie, which was mm -hmm. called Mr. Cinema. And uh, so we, we wanted him to go because he knew, he knew, he saw so many movies, he knew so well. So he went there to the elimination and he was accepted. And he went on television, first program in color and every, everybody was watching. And he won, he won five weeks in a row. And he won the equivalent today of $100,000. Wow. $100,000. And with that money, he gave a little bit to us, but he went to school to learn movie uh, photography and movie making. And today is one of the very famous movie maker in France. Wow. So tell me this, what is your favorite movie? Your brother's this movie guru. Godfather, tell me. The, the Godfather one, not the number one. <laughs> hey, so here's the interesting thing about that movie is the guy who wrote the movie and who is it Mario Puzo? I don't even remember. Yeah, Mario Puzo, yes. So, he wrote the book first, correct? Yes. And then they um, optioned it to make a movie and he ends up writing the screenplay and he'd never written a screenplay before and he writes it and it does well and he decides he needs to learn how to write screenplays. So he's gonna, he needs to learn the skill of it. He wants to figure if he's gonna write screenplays, he should do it right. And either he went to a seminar or read a screenwriting book. And the first thing it says is if you wanna go learn how to write a screenplay, go study The Godfather. And he's like, well, I guess I know it already. And so that was that, but. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. That's a nice story. Yeah. Yes. So, and then number two is probably uh, Citizen Kane. All right. So you're going back to Orson Welles and <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the original, it's the original greatest movie. Um, we Right, they changed how movies were filmed. All of a sudden, you had different film transitions and angles, and it's it was the 
it was groundbreaking as far as I think the technical side of shooting the film. Am I correct there, Jonathan? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You're vested in a lot of films, sir. I know a little bit about a lot, but not a bunch about anything. <laughs> you, you, you convinced me so far of both, knowing a lot of, a little and a lot, in so, depth too. So Jonathan, how, how have your dreams or goals changed throughout your life? And are you at peace with these changes? Whew. You know, we're, I never introduced you to him, okay? But I have a friend who is Italian background. And he dreamt always. He saw himself, you know, with a, like an Italian movie with all the kids, the grandkids, you know, the family all gathering. Mm-hmm. You know, with the mama and the pasta and everything like that, you know, every in the evening and so on. And uh, all that was broken when his uh, twin son at age 17 hanged himself. Okay. And uh, so the reason I'm saying that is because we had a lot of dreams, we had a lot of hopes, a lot of idea and vision and all that. But right now they are all so shaken by what happened to us, you know? Like for example, my son, and uh, when he talks about the future, he, th- he would love that we live together, not in Dallas and in Los Angeles, but in the same town with our daughter, with everybody, you know? Remember I told you the, the feeling of vulnerability and so on, yeah. right? So all that now becomes so, so palpable. You can touch it, you know, that, that feeling, that, you want to be all together, you know, all close to each other. So my plans for the future have changed completely, you know, and to be honest with you, I don't know what they are right now. You know, you, you said that, you know, a few months from now, you know, I would be more at peace and I would be able probably to, to uh, make wiser decisions. And, but right now I, it's very, very unclear to tell you for me uh, what I'm going to do and where we're going to be and uh, where we're going to live and with whom and all that. So, this is well yeah and you know the interesting thing is when you have kids and i guess grandkids and whatever but whenever you have that legacy of people one of the things that makes you real vulnerable is that so many of your dreams and goals are for them and that type of thing so it makes you real vulnerable so you know and so it makes so much sense when we talk about what makes you happy now. And it's those people in that legacy of yours or that line, when you have a sense that they're having a good day or that they're having even a happy moment or a moment exactly. where, yes. And so. Um, Just to hear them laugh again, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, tell me this. I've got a question for you. So what would you say is the most rewarding thing about getting older? The uh, financial independence. To be able to say, uh, you know, I have many customers, uh, many of them that in the past I didn't like, I just don't go to see them. I can't afford to do that today. So it's a, it's a, it's a real treat. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, uh, yes, I, I love the idea of financial independence. I've got four young kids, so I'm nowhere near that. 
you'll get there one day. You seem like a very smart and bright person. Well, thank you. So, Jonathan, how do how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as uh, honest, generous. And I will tell you that I can't remember who was the person who told me that, but it was like over 30 years ago. But he said something. He said, you know what? In life, you really have only two things. is your immediate family, you know, the one like you say, your son, your kids, your wife, the immediate family, and your reputation. They are the only things that are yours for good. The rest, bank account, title, jobs, uh, anything else, all the rest can go. The immediate family is yours forever. Your reputation is yours forever. So I have seen, I have seen one person, of course, I won't mention the name here, but I was at his funeral and he used to be known in the industry as a guy who was dishonest. <laughs> I heard two guys while they were burying him. One guy said, I'm glad he's gone at his funeral, okay? Yeah. So the reputation you have, whether it's a good or bad one, it's going to follow you all your life. So I, if you tell me how I try to be generous, to be honest, to be condescendent, help people. I want to be remembered as such, as a person that was, uh, you know, honest, honest. So Jonathan, is that innate in you? Is that natural to you? Is that something that you got from, you know, we your got mom from, I think, or? I think from our mom, you know, our mom yeah. was, I said, she was a widow at 28. She worked her butt off to, to feed us and to give us, mm -hmm. you know, she did things that uh, I don't know how a mom could do that. My father had a brother, older brother. Mm -hmm. My father had an older brother by, I think, seven years who couldn't have kids. And uh, when they got my first brother, the firstborn, right? His name was mm -hmm. Robert. Mm -hmm. they, gave, they gave their kid. To the brother. My mom gave her firstborn to her husband's brother because he didn't have children. Not because they were poor, anything like that. My father was well off, you know, before before mm -hmm. he died. Okay? So my mom has been a very generous person, very, very and I think she she gave us that uh, she is used to be the type of person when she worked that she would go to the uh, store and she made a good deal the first day you know she opened the store on her own when she was maybe 35 37 she would come back home and she say hey, i she, she would come back home at nine o'clock in the morning and say i closed the store somebody bought something so nice and i made a good deal with no no school today we all go to the beach that's it <laughs> that was the type of person she she was enjoy every moment and she gave us a lot of uh, love affection and that i think we got both my sister and my brother we got that from her wow that's great. So tell me this, outside of your mother, and I'm assuming you would say your mother, so I don't know, but who's influenced you the most in life? What person? You say influence or influenced in the past? No, influenced you. Like who's, who's, been the, who's made right a big now. impact on you? Whether now or in the past, like in your I, life, if you look back. I, I, think, I think my older brother, the one that in fact, you know, lived with uh, the uncle, Mm -hmm. He was, he was. He, he put a lot of trust in me, and and uh, he he showed he showed me a lot of things in the world. And my wife, I think, yes. Okay. So my mom, my brother, and my wife. So I've got some curiosity questions. Uh, 
and this isn't a question, uh, it's a very open-ended question. Tell me about Israel in the 70s. <laughs> hey, hello, Jonathan. Israel in the 70s was a, a very, very uh, rural, you know, you, it, it's, it was like, like a big farm. There was not, you know, it's not, today when you go to Israel, the big cities are similar to cities in the US, but in those days, in the 70s, it was like being, uh, living in a, in a small town atmosphere, you know, where people were uh, helping each other, loving each other. Uh, you would, you, you know, you go to the neighbor, you knock the door and you ask for uh, milk or lemon or thing of that nature or salt, you know, very, very open, very open, friendly, loving atmosphere. It was a great place to raise kids. You know, we never, we'd have never had the opportunity to, to turn our kids to what they became, if not for Israel. It was a place really, even though there was so much danger around, you felt so much at peace and safe inside of Israel, really. Okay. And by the way, I went, I did two wars while I was there, okay? <laughs> so. As far as you were there during the war, you actually served yeah, during I, the I war. I was drafted and I went to do, to the, I did two yeah. wars. One, one in the Sinai, you know, it was Egypt, mm -hmm. and one in the Golan Eye during the Yom Kippur War. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so if you were writing a story, you know, how would you, how would you, your life story, how would you divide it into chapters? The first chapter would be, uh, in fact, it's it's three chapter. Okay. Because, and it's funny because I, I spent 20 years in that French or French colony, right? And then 20 mm -hmm. years in Israel and 20 years in the US. By the way, I'm looking at a place for the next 20 years. If you know somewhere, let me know. But anyhow, so, so uh, 20 years is, you know, uh, you know, childhood and teenager in, in France, in, in Tunisia. And then 20 years in Israel, my wife, going to war, trying to create, you know, in Israel uh, to contribute to this country and raising kids there. And then 20 years in Israel, in the US, now it's more than 20, so it's 30, uh, to uh, build to build a, a livelihood for ourselves from scratch. That's cool. So after, after the war, you say you served, like what, what were your feelings after the war? After the war, yes, you know the I, I was the first the second war, which was a big one, the Yom Kippur war. I was drafted for six months, and it's a long time to go at war for six months. Okay, so uh, and uh, for three weeks, there was I was not able to communicate to my family, no, nobody. So they thought I was dead, you know, probably prisoner, something like that. So, uh, so the feeling to go when you go back home, heaven and you see your wife and you see your kids and all that, that feeling cannot compare to anything, especially that they think you're dead and you come back home. You know, it's like in the movies. It's really, you're happy like in the movies. <laughs> Did you feel like, you know, I watched, um, I forgot, was the last big war movie. And the, the guys mentioned that, you know, there was the one where the British guys came back from the war and they were saying how all that was for what? Oh, you mean all the war was for what, right? Yeah, yeah, very, it was like a very, like before, 
you know, they felt like, you know, this thing, like, you know, we're, we're going to go fight for our country, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, they came back and they were treated like crap in London, in England. Yeah. And, you know, they just had this feeling of like, that was, you know, all that death and violence, you know, I just, it, they, they felt very, just very empty. You know, when you, when you go at war, let me tell you a few things about war. First of all, you have two types of people during war. Mm-hmm. The normal people and all of them, with no exception, they, are, they fear, they are so scared to die that it's almost, your stomach is in, is, is in your throat, okay? Mm-hmm. And with, you have an exception of just a handful. And I think they are probably insane because they don't, they don't understand the risk of war, okay? What I have seen during the war is so, so terrible that I am, I am a very, very big pacifist. I, I would love, like John Lennon, one government in the world and no war. Nothing. nothing. Nothing is worse, you know, going and killing someone or being killed and leaving your family, you know, without a father or without a husband. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in Israel, you know, very often the war were imposed on us, so we didn't have a choice, okay? But mm-hmm. if, it, if I had it my way, I wouldn't mind having one word government and that's it. People live in uh, harmony and unison and no war anymore. That's, yeah. I mean, I think that's a nice sentiment, but I mean, even under our government, we can't seem to get the people here to get along. I don't know what we'd do in a one world government. Uh, It would be wonderful, but... I know know it's utopic. I know that. Yeah, I I think, you know, I I don't know. You know, I've got a father who served and a grandfather who served, and uh, I've got a nephew in the military right now. And, you know, respect and honor all of them and but i know for you know with my father i know he didn't come back the same as he left um i didn't come back the same my wife told me either okay yeah and i i just think you know i think one of the problems is is that what they know is true is that you know they draft young people because young people especially young men are typically bulletproof and very confident and they don't realize how psychologically and emotionally and probably physically damning damaging war is. Uh, yet, um, yet I'll, I know if they were to draft people who were, you know, 40 to 60, they, they wouldn't have as much compliance. Everybody would, be, everybody would fly to Canada in a minute. Yeah, that's why they get them at 18 when they don't think too much. Yes. And they're bulletproof. They all think death is something that happens to somebody else. That, that's why people get married at 18 and go to be drafted at 18 because we, we don't think too much at that age. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Now, Jonathan, if we run along, you just let me know. I, just, um, I have a three-parter for you. So the question is, do you have a philosophy on life? I think I know that one. What's the best piece of advice for living? And if a young person came to you and asked, what's the most important thing to living a good life, what would you say?
The first thing to live a good life is to do something that you really enjoy. That's the most important thing. Because too many people, unfortunately, do a job that they hate or they dislike. And in reality, if you count the hours between the time it takes you to go to work, the time you spend at work and the time to come back, you spend more time at work than you spend with your wife or with your family, with everything. So the most important thing is do something you enjoy. It doesn't mean that you have to go to university. It doesn't mean if you like to be a disc jockey and you enjoy that, do that. Regardless of what your family tells you that you're going to be a doctor or whatever. If you want to be a doctor, be a doctor. Do, and you know what? If you want something, really, you can achieve it and you can get it. So first of all, the first thing is, you know, do a job that you enjoy. Second thing is marry someone that you can, you know, he's not only your wife and your lover, but it's mostly your friend. You want to have somebody that you share things with, that, you know, you, you know, I, I, I see you heaven, you know, how you sometimes uh, talk about your wife. Mm-hmm. I'm moving that to you now. I see how you talk about your wife and how you pay attention to try to help on some details to help her on things she does and all that. And I find it wonderful. I think you're really a very loving husband, okay? And so I think it's very important to, you're going to spend your life, hopefully, not just, you know, six months in divorce or six years in divorce or 30 years. You want to do, spend the whole time with her, okay? So pick up the right one, the one that can be your friend, beside being your wife okay so i think these are the two things that are very important for me oh that's good so what is what is the one thing that you wish you knew then that you know now i wish i knew more about borderline disability disorder that i learned after i didn't spend enough time studying the disease like mm-hmm. your friend explained maybe i could have changed things mm. i'm sorry that many of the things come back to that same topic but it's it's only two months you understand so it impacted us sure. like, well, like a bullet. yeah that in the hardest part about losing somebody in that manner is it's it's second guessing and thinking what could you have done differently you know i mean obviously the hardest part is losing them but the hardest thing you do to yourself is second guess what could i have done different and go through it or exactly you know yeah or you're trying to be a detective what could what could have what could i have changed that would have made it to where this situation didn't happen and let me tell you and you know this probably everybody in your family and everybody close to y'all is going through that same thing wow, what could I have done? Uh, and it's a hard thing. And it's, you know, I, I know that. you're so right. I'll give you an example. Okay. Jonathan asked mm-hmm. me one day, Hey, he called me Pepe, you know, which is French means grandpa. Okay. So mm-hmm. Pepe, you know, why don't I come to work with you? You know, you're going to be, you're old now. You're going to be retired soon. Why I don't take the business from you and I learn the job from you. Okay. And this mm-hmm. business, you know, is consulting and sales, mm-hmm. right? And you know that he cannot live with rejection and in sales and in consulting. You have a lot of rejection. You go in a meeting and so on. Somebody tell you, oh, no, so I don't need you. And I, I just wanted to avoid him that, you know, I was going to leave him everything I have to, to be able to live comfortably, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't want him to go through that process of rejection that you have often in sales, right? 
So maybe it was a mistake. Maybe I could have saved him if I had taken him to work with me. Okay. This type, type of thing you think that, you know, going to haunt you for a long time. Yes. On a, it, it does, it doesn't stop. Yeah, it will haunt you. And it, and there'll be days where it's great and it's not haunting you. And there'll be days where you think, hey, this is, I got this beat. I've got it figured out. I'm fine. And then you'll have days where it hurts as bad as the moment you found out. You know, and that's that's the nature of loss. And yeah. So uh, on a much, much lighter note. So we need that. Pepe Le Pew is technically Grandpa Le Pew. Yeah. The cat in the cartoon. Or the yeah, skunk. <laughs> One, boy, when I think about the cartoons that we watched, oh, boy, uh-huh. how popular is Pepe Le Pew in France, by the way, uh, Jonathan? What? How you know Pepe Le Pew the the cartoon? No, no, I don't know it, but it, so Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew was a skunk who was girl crazy over this black and white cat, but he thought they were the same. He didn't care. And he was one of those just love struck and he was over the top, you know, with amour and love and all this stuff, but it borderlined on sexual assault. If you he was Harvey there. Weinstein of the cartoon community, Jonathan, that's what he was. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, you know, we, in which years were that? Bro, just when you get out, just write it down. When you get out the phone, I want type in the computer. How do you write Le Pew? Pop Le Pew. Right. Is it P-I-E-U? No, it's P-E-P-E-L-E and then I think P-E-W or P because it's about him smelling the yeah. Le Pew. It's smell. about him being a skunk. Pepe Le Pew. Okay, we look it up. Oh my gosh. Don't let your don't let your grandkids. It is Pepe P E P E space L E space P E W. P W P W. Okay, Pew. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yes, and hey, it uh, he was a French striped skunk. Uh, <laughs> first appeared in cartoons in 1945. But yeah, uh, it's it's. You, they talk about things that are cringeworthy or that make your body cringe. <laughs> Old cartoons do that now. I thought it was normal at the time. It's like, oh, that's that's how you get the girl. You just got to be a little bit aggressive, you know. She yeah. even looked uneasy. Like the, yeah, <laughs> she yeah. always running from him, Jonathan. Jonathan is crazy. I would look it up. Yeah, and but all the like, I won't let my kids watch cartoons that I would binge watch. Oh, <laughs> so much. You remind I, me. You remind me of Groucho Marx saying, you know, when one day you, you wanted to try to join a club in Beverly Hills. You heard that one, I'm sure, right? Oh, yes. I, I would never belong to a club that would have me as a member. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> so you watch the cartoon, you won't show your kids. A hundred percent, I won't show them. But I didn't know at the time, like Haven was saying, you know, all those cartoons were normal and they just were the cartoons. And the thing is, in what we don't acknowledge, they're very inappropriate, a lot of them, when you look back, whether they were racist or sexist or, you know, they were even very, some of them nationalistic. Um, I'm trying to think of the 
one with Boris that was very a Cold War cartoon. But um, Bullwinkle, Bo- Rocky and Bullwinkle, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what we, but what we don't acknowledge on him and why we watched him is there was a lot of funny stuff in him. I mean, they they were made to entertain. I'm going to watch some of those on YouTube. I hope I'm going to find them. Oh man! Oh, you'll find them. The classic. Yes. All right. All right. So we're going to end on this note. If you could write a message to each one of your children and grandchildren. You're going to put it in a time capsule and they're going to read it 20 years from now. What would you write to each of them? You're going to read it 20 years from now? 20 years from now, yeah. So to 2040. Love the people around you. Uh-huh. Show them you love them. Be honest. Do things you like. Enjoy every moment of your life, like if it was going to end tomorrow. That's probably what I would tell them. And I would give them the key of the safe to tell them where to find the money I saved for them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That was fantastic. James, you have more questions? Hey, I had a... I I really really, it, it's very difficult to say I enjoyed our conversation because of the there was so much hard subject matter. But I really enjoyed getting to know you. I really enjoyed our interaction. I um, really enjoyed you guys a lot. Really, I knew heaven, so I knew what I was expecting already. But I did not know you, and it was a pleasure meeting you and sharing was, with you. I felt really at ease with both of you. You're good people. Thank you. So are you, and thank you so much for going through this with us uh we loved having you on you did a great job and uh you know just know you and your family are in my prayers thank you very much yeah jonathan thank you so much man thanks for pouring your heart out to us and uh taking out some time to uh oh thank you you it was i enjoyed talking to you guys thank you again for our listeners so that being said like scribe review if you have any questions um Regarding this podcast, hit us up at Two Blind Spotters on Twitter. What's the uh, email? Blind Dash Spotters. You're gonna have to have me look at it now. Uh, real quick, as I look, why don't you say something else that's I super cool? I think it's pretty at Blind Blind Dash Spotters. I think is the uh, no, it's it's not. It's Blind Spotters Podcast at Gmail. <laughs> oh, email. Okay. Blind yeah. Spot Podcast email. Thank At you, Gmail. Guys. At Gmail, sorry. Yeah. Thank you guys. Like, subscribe, review. Tune in to the same bat time, same bat channel next week. We out. We back. You just tuned into the show, man. We called it the Blind Spotters. Hit that subscribe button. You know you ought to. Go ahead and like and review. Just sit back, relax, and learn.